Today, we will discuss that even though there are concerns over the economy and differences in pricing expectations, commercial real estate activity is still happening. My name is Christina Vallis, the National Director of Strategic Implementation for CBC, and I'll be your host on this episode of the CRE with Cola Banker Commercial Worldwide podcast. I am joined today by one of my favorite guests and my boss, Dan Spiegel, Managing Director of Cola Banker Commercial. If you are new to tuning in, Dan's commercial real estate credentials span over 30 years, but has been the leader of CBC for four years now. He leads Cobalt Banker Commercial from a franchising perspective, as well as the company-owned brokerage, CBC Realty. Today, we'll dig into CBC's newly published mid-year outlook. Welcome back, Dan. Thank you for joining us again. Thanks, Christina. It's great to be here again. Absolutely. Well, Since I'm a hopeless optimist, self-proclaimed, I'd like to start with the conclusion of where you are seeing trends in the industry, and then we could talk through the details. So how are we feeling about the current state of affairs? It's a a great question, and uh, I will be just like the weatherman. What I'll say today may change tomorrow, depending on some external factors. The beginning of this year, um, our thought was that things will stabilize by the middle of 2023 and perhaps start to... Uh, maybe I'll say improved at the end of this year, um, but I think I've revised my thoughts on that and our thoughts on that and expecting now increased transaction activity to be in 20, early 2024 and not the end of 2023. I don't think things will get dramatically worse, but we don't, I don't think at this point, given that interest rates have not necessarily settled altogether, that we would, can expect uh, an uptick at the end of the year. Not uh, not doom and gloom, which is nice to hear, but definitely some work to be done. Um, where would you like to start? I think digging into cap rates might be a good starting point for this discussion, but up to you. Yeah, I think that's a, it's, it's a point of discussion. Uh, it certainly infects the investment market, uh, both institutional as private and private investor investment markets. I mean, the conversion uh, or of cap rates and 10-year treasuries has uh, put a stall in the market. And the reason I mentioned 10-year treasuries is because most commercial real estate loans are pegged or reflective of the 10-year treasury notes. And as the interest rates on those notes have increased and gotten closer to cap rates, it you know there's a risk premium that real estate investors want to get in return for investing their money in real estate. And is that you know if the alternative is put it in treasuries, let's say at 4.5% versus a return at one time of maybe 8%, but now it's down to 5%. When that gap gets small, it puts a stall in the market. Uh, so that's one thing uh, that the sort of cap rate and 10-year treasury note conversion situation that we're in, and, and it varies by property type, but no, uh, it's getting closer. In other words, the gap is getting smaller across all property types in commercial real estate, uh, while maybe closer in some than the others. Well, for the benefit of our listening audience, maybe some that aren't as um, invested in the commercial real estate space, but um, are more familiar in residential terms. I just wanted to kind of close the gap. I know interest rates are something people talk about a lot on the residential side, and obviously that's on a lot of headlines. How can somebody that is more familiar with the concept of interest rates and home buying really connect um, what that's meaningful when, in talking about cap rates? That's, yeah, that's a good question. And it, it's similar but different, if that's fair to say. Uh, when you're talking about interest rates on a home mortgage, and it could be, a, as I said, it could be a 10-year arm or it could be a 30-year mortgage, which is very common in residential, less common in commercial real estate. It's it's a personal economic decision, right? 
Um, your interest rates can determine your monthly payment, and therefore people of different income levels or all income levels are going to have a different level of affordability based on the interest rate of the market. So as interest rates have climbed over the past year, it's essentially made the buying power of the residential buyer uh, less or weaken, and, and hence uh, transaction volume has dropped off in the residential. All right. Corollary on the commercial side is it's not a, it's an investment, right? It's a business decision. So you're not looking necessary. Yes. I mean, you are looking, it does, you are looking at the monthly payment, so to speak, at the cost of the loan, but you're looking at that cost of the loan relative to the return on the property you're investing in. And what I was just uh, mentioning is that return, that, that, that gap between the rate you're paying and the monthly payment, so to speak. Uh, and the return you're getting there has to be big enough to encourage commercial real estate investors to take the risk of buying a property, knowing that potentially it could be a fully leased income property, but it could also be a property where they have to invest capital to improve the property, to make it more desirable, to convert it to a different use and things like that. And if there's not enough potential gain there, then why would you do it, right? As an investor, you'd sit on the sidelines saying, hey, I'm going to wait for property prices to fall. So the cap rate rises and it makes more sense to invest. There's no need for me to do it now. So there is a correlate between the residential and the commercial market. It's just the difference between a personal financial decision and a business financial decision. That makes some great sense. I think that'll help some folks connect the concepts. Thanks. I Thinking about, I guess, lending, as you were mentioning, from a residential perspective, I think we can dig into the concept of bank lending and how that's very tight, according to your trend report and what we're seeing in the industry. And what are we seeing as ways to combat that? Right. So these are all interrelated concepts, right? Uh, so again, in the just use that same analogy again, since we we're on a theme there. So in the residential market, you know, banks might tighten up their lending criteria in terms of what they expect for people to earn or tenure in a position or carry debt, things like that. In the commercial space, you know, there is some of that too. They can require higher what are called LTVs or loan to value value ratios on the loan uh, to ask the investor to put in more equity and borrow less. So that's similar to a house in, in some regards. But there also is sort of a, I like to say this, and I'll say this in a kind way, a herd mentality in the financial industry, where probably beginning with the Silicon Valley bank troubles that were you know several months ago, which weren't necessarily commercial real estate, by the way, they weren't commercial real estate related, but it brought a lot of awareness to vulnerability of banks, be them large money institutions or regional banks that may have um, higher than average exposure to commercial real estate. And the reason why banks would tighten up is they go, huh, as those loans come due, because as I said, they're five or 10 year terms using commercial real estate, uh, maybe I'm not going to be willing to refinance them, right? Maybe um, the rents will have dropped in the market and I'm going to take the decision not to refinance and that's going to cause potentially a problem loan, right? A loan that needs to go into servicing because the owner is not going to, the lend, the borrower is not going to be able to pay on it. So different dynamics, certainly in the commercial market, what we have found and we wrote in our mid-year report is that banks have tightened up, have increased their their criteria when it comes to equity on the part of the borrower in the, in, in the deal, or they've just decided to, themselves to sit on the sidelines and not lend as much in commercial real estate. So okay. it it, it um, does provide us a little. I won't say I don't want to use the term liquidity crisis because I don't I don't like those terms. I don't want to paint that as a picture. But if you know if, if a borrower does see an investment, they can't get the lending. That just puts the deal. It just kills the deal, right? Until that lending's available, uh, the investor is not going to be able to make the transaction happen. 
just for the sake of our listeners, is when people talk about CMBSs or commercial backed mortgage, how does that connect with it with the banks and the issues that we were seeing with the banks to kind of maybe help calm some of the fears of like commercial real estate is in because there's some headlines that are just obviously clickbait, right? Uh, it's commercial real estate is in peril. And so uh, it doesn't seem like that's what we're seeing. So how do we um, kind of get over those headlines to understand that a little bit better? Right. There's a variety of uh, ways to finance commercial real estate, and it applies to different segments of the market. Obviously, there are people that are have cash on hand that obviously are not going to be susceptible to the trends in interest rates, right? Those are obviously the people who could take advantage of, of opportunities in today or the coming market. Uh, then we talked about the regional banks, um, regional or national financial institutions that may choose to pull back on commercial real estate lending because they don't they want to minimize any potential risk exposure in the future, or they want to balance their loan portfolio and maybe lend more towards you know consumer loans or some other segment of uh, lending out there. And then there is the commercial mortgage-backed security (CMBS), which is used by the large institutional property owners, mostly large office, industrial, and some retail properties. Um, that are sort of pu- publicly traded debt, debt that's raised on cap- financial markets out there. And again, uh, those loans, because of their short term, you know, relative to a 30-year mortgage, uh, can run into trouble when they come due. Uh, and a large percentage of low- CMBS loans are coming due in the next couple of years, you know, based on five investments or loans taken five or 10 years ago. And if, if they're not able to refinance those loans, uh, their properties will go into what's called distress. In other words, not able to make their debt payments. And then the last bucket, Christina, not to get into too much uh, nuance here, there are there is commercial real estate financing, particularly for large institutional projects available from life insurance companies, as well as uh, sovereign wealth funds from different countries that want to invest in real estate in the United States. But again, they're all somewhat subject to the same question mark, right? Huh, do I want to continue to extend lending at this moment uh, in an uncertain market, be it the United States or another part of the world? Or do I want to just sit back? And I really think what what we identified in the report is really across the board, and particularly for the properties that Cobalt Banker Commercial does most of our transactions in the private investor market, there's definitely a sit on the sidelines, wait and see what's going to happen attitude right now. It's not that people can't, it's just they're not willing to make transactions with the uncertainty uh, or the inability to get financing. That makes sense. It's like a measured patience. Mm-hmm. I was reading through the mid-year report, and it seems like maybe one of those exceptions are uh, the space in 1031 exchanges. Can you talk about how that's still thriving market for folks, or or if it, if not, you know, not to to lead with that, but well, it's I wouldn't call it a thriving market, but 1031 exchanges are, I don't know, say tax deferred exchange transact commercial real estate transactions, in which a seller you know sells a property and has a specified uh, period of time to reinvest the property. Uh, and not incur uh, tax on that, the proceeds of the sale. Uh, now, the market, you know, when there is a robust market activity and people are looking for alternatives to the stock market and things like that, 1031, you know, people are selling their real estate, perhaps they're lo- investing in the stock market or, or looking for other properties because they're going up in price and they wanted to sell and take advantage. The market's sort of a, a well oiled machine. Um, at, the, at present, you know, there are going to still be 1031 buyers out there because people do need to sell for different reasons, life circumstances, family, you know, passing properties in, you know, down generations. There are some reasons. And we've found is there are opportunities in 1031s and you generally coming out of it have the money to reinvest in another property in the time frame. 
It's just that there is somewhat of a scarcity of properties on the market, given the other dynamics going on. So we, if people are astute to residential real estate, there's a lot of talk about inventory being low. And I don't like, it's not the same situation in commercial real estate, but if there are not, if there are people holding back because they're not willing to sell at this time, that essentially is the same thing in commercial real estate as well. That makes sense. I know that a lot of conversation I hear connecting the concepts of 1031 and, and something else I wanted to dig into, but a lot of folks that I see in their 1031s are really investing in triple net leases. And I know leasing is an opportunity space, I think, uh, as far as we're seeing trends. Um, why is that? Or why yeah, do we see that happening more frequently? So two different issues, uh, two different issues. So the 1031, you know, the net leased investments are essentially a pretty darn safe type of investment for someone who might consider a long-term bond, right? You're you're typically buying a property that's, you know, again, typically a freestanding retail building leased to a, a very strong credit tenant, you know, let's say like Starbucks or a fast food chain or something like that with a corporate guarantee. So it's a good all investment alternative. Um, but that's that's one section of the market. The other market section that we talked about is the leasing market in general. Like what? And so while leasing of large corporations is definitely lackluster as corporations still adjust to the work from home environment of today, the so it, tenants have you know definitely decided either to extend for short period of times or to downlight on the large corporate space. However, there are users who maybe are not ready to jump into the acquisition market. They decide they don't need to buy a building or people who need to make short-term decisions will definitely look at leasing. So we've seen in general, if that makes sense, leasing activity pick up for smaller spaces, uh, particularly in the office sector where uh, it's not a large corporate decision maker. It might be a private law firm, a physical therapy clinic, some places that really do need office space. And they're not going to go into the acquisition buy market. They're going to stick in the lease market. And furthermore, those tenants that are currently leasing, you know, conditions are such that it makes sense probably to renew or extend that lease, right? So le leasing, again, I'm not going to say it's a boom market because there's the mitigating factor of large corporates that are not doing as much leasing now or doing smaller leasing. But relative to our, what we've seen in the past, leasing is, uh, I will say, particularly in smaller buildings or smaller spaces, seems to be pretty uh, stable at this time. Thinking about, uh, this is a little off, off from the trend report, but thinking about skill sets for our commercial real estate brokers that are listening, if somebody's used to kind of the buy-sell pattern, what different skills or, you know, things do, you, I guess, business practices can somebody hone in on to become or to move into leasing? Like, do you see people doing that, A? And then B, is there something different that a broker would need to consider or really um, be mindful of as they're trying to diversify the way they do business to continue their their growth? It's a good question. You're speaking of the commercial real estate practitioner, professionals we call it at CBC. Uh, you know, there's generally, it, it somewhat depends on the person's interest, right? There are people that just love investment and sales transactions and that what they stick to. And they're going to figure out a way to pivot in this market, perhaps to a different property type. You know, maybe they're doing multifamily, going to land or something. So that's one type of commercial professional out there. There are other professionals, particularly in large metro markets that only focus on leasing. And that particularly office leasing was very common for many, you know, at least, you know, decades to be an office tenant rep broker or project. Uh, leasing broker of a large office property. And that business is, it's not dead in the water, but it's challenged, right? Because of the corporate real estate decision-making to put a pause on taking more space or downsizing space. Um, so that's an aspect of the leasing business as well. 
And then there's sort of the, I'll call it the, the, the neighborhood leasing. That might be a retail strip center uh, and a smaller industrial building. That might be done by someone who also does investment sales transactions. Um, and it's a different skill set because it's a different type of analysis, particularly if you're representing a tenant when you're doing a comparative lease analysis is different than the type of analysis you do, as we kind of discussed earlier, when it comes to lending rates on an investment sale property. It, the the skill set is definitely different. Um, the attention to detail is super keen on the leasing business because of the length of leases and it's all, you know, all the language in a lease is a negotiated agreement. Um, so there's definitely a different skill involved. Um, and, but really, is I, I think it depends on the, the particular agent or professional's interest uh, and the, and the uh, opportunities in their market. I wanted to talk a little bit about office and leasing. I think office is the, right, like you said, the predominant leasing um, segment. But where are we seeing growth? Because I know in the trend report, we were, you show where there have been biggest job growth. So mm -hmm. where are where are we seeing positive growth in that regard? So the office sector is definitely a, could be a whole podcast in and of itself, right? First of all, the news about the office sector, particularly in downtown markets like San Francisco and New York, has put some color on the rest of the commercial real estate market right now. Uh, yes, office real estate, as we just spoke about, is challenged as firms make a decision about what they're going to do about their long-term space commitments and in the work-from-home environment that we're in today. Um, so that's that's one segment of it. So we'll call that downtown center core cities. It's not that there's no leasing going on. There are definitely growth. You know, let's take the AI sector. Well, if an AI uh, company would like to, you know, grow uh, their business and they feel like they need in-person activity and, and relationships and they might be leasing space. So there are growing sectors out there. Don't forget that not everything is downsizing. Um, there are growth sector. So anyway, so there's the downtown office uh, type you know, corporate user buildings that appeal to the corporate users. But where we've seen the growth in two areas, one is we have to remember that over the last several years, uh, beginning with the pandemic, there has been a population shift in the United States. Uh, perhaps there always is something ongoing. You know, the, the Sunbelt states have been growing for many years. But as that shift has taken place uh, over the last several years, there's going to follow demand for office space. Uh, or retail space and some other uses as industrial as well. And we've seen the uptake in office space be in medical office because that is a service that you have to be in person. Uh, medical office, uh, and I would call them uh, business services. So things like attorneys, dentists, accountants, you know, not large corporates that need space, but, but smaller users, uh, either because of the population shift and they've moved their business or simply because, for example, the medical office or, or segment is continuing to grow as our population ages and uh, new medical services can be delivered closer to the patient as opposed to in central hospital campuses. I think you hit something really accurately. I just wanted to kind of highlight is that a lot of times when we see these headlines about commercial real estate generally, uh, I think oftentimes they're wrapped into primary markets like San Francisco, New York and regarding office. And I think it's great for our listeners to remember that, I mean, obviously our, our broker professionals know this deep down, but for the rest of our listeners, uh, that it's a very diverse industry. And so besides office, where are we seeing a lot of opportunity or shifting in general? Right. Is that yeah, we just talked about and, and again I say this all the time, don't don't color the whole commercial real estate industry simply because of what you hear and read about in downtown office. That is yeah. one segment of the business. There there are still growth sectors. I mean, we talked about regionally, 
uh, there where population shift has been, there is still growth in commercial real estate, particularly office. But don't forget industrial, even smaller industrial is going to follow in some of those markets because you know distribution is retail today, continues to be. And you know there may be a slowdown in building more million square foot distribution warehouses in the large port markets because there's already saturation. Uh, but in secondary and tertiary markets, there is still a need for getting that product closer to the end recipient of it. Um, so there could be demand for industrial. So industrial has te tempered down as well for different reasons. Again, because of the, maybe the big freight boom is of the last several years is kind of slowed. Um, so, but it's, but it's slowed from a point of very, very low vacancy rates in markets all across the country for industrial space to a little bit higher than very low vacancy rates. So there's still good demand for industrial, uh, just less so than we got used to over the last several years. Uh, retail is a little bit of a mixed bag. We talked about net lease retail earlier. Again, where there's population growth, there's still demand for retail, you know, as people need to, you know, people have been going out in the post-pandemic era uh, for all different services. So that's definitely a, a place. Uh, we've seen a slowdown in the multifamily market overall for a variety of reasons. Um, but we've also seen an uptick in, in uh, the land market, particularly for residential development and single-family residential rentals. Right. So we if you read the headlines, you read a lot about the lack of available housing in markets, urban and non-urban. And that leads to, you know, again, if the finances are there to residential developers building more homes, which starts with a commercial land sale transaction. I find it just kind of interesting thinking about land and how it's in high demand from a build perspective. But I was reading through the mid-year report conversely on the commercial side, it seems like there are less opportunities for buildings being built to spec. And it, it, you were writing a little bit about owner users doing all the building. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I think it makes sense from everything we said. I mean, spec development is essentially a building that a developer builds. And let's not, let's carve out residential for a second. Sure. Uh, you know, build it and they will come. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Um, you're building an industrial office property. And you know, again, given the things we spoke about at the beginning of the call with interest rates and and that risk premium, you know, shrinking the the, the return available to a to a developer, why why take the risk on a spec development? Right. There, there the cost of lending is high. Uh, in some places, supplies and labor and construction costs are high. So just so spec development in general, it's very typical in a in a slower economic cycle goes down. Again, the only exception being if you were in a fast-growing market that hasn't caught up yet, like say Idaho or parts mm -hmm. of Texas and so forth, you may still see spec retail and development, at least or it may have just one or two anchor tenants in a development. Uh, and then, it, however, if you are a business and you can particularly finance your own and you can't find space suitable or you find it desirable for corporate identity and other reasons to have your own space, uh, then you can go ahead and do you know custom construction, custom build construction for uh, commercial real estate, right? That that's not protected. You are obviously you're not you're still subject to the whims of construction costs and labor and things like that. But you may have the cash on hand, and it may make sense for you to own a property. If, and if you can finance the development, you know why not? So again, we put we put that as a uh, I'll call it a bright spot, although it is not the largest segment of the market. And I know that this next thing I'll mention gets a lot of headlines too, and I imagine it's related to what we were just talking about, um, but the concept of adaptive reuse. Where are we seeing that? Is it as prolific as we're seeing everywhere? What do you have to say about that? Well, adaptive reuse, you know, I commonly have thought of, or I think we 
commonly think of as like take an older loft building and convert it to really cool residential space or perhaps a hotel, right? That's in general, when I speak of adaptive reuse, at least that's what I've had in mind. Today, the buzz is around what could we do with excess office space in particular, and could it is there an applicable adaptive reuse of that office space into residential in particular? I've spoken on this a couple times recently, and it's a great idea, and it may work in some projects. Uh, it, you know, certainly, it starts with the finances. Do the financial investment make sense? But then, you, but we're still we, we still have to deal with some challenging issues, such as things like zoning, right? So, first of all, you know, you can't just take a building in a CBD and convert it from office to residential. So that's one that's called that a municipal issue. Um, you have physical issues, and that office buildings may not have been built. Uh, with the same uh, light considerations that one would expect are, are required for residential. So in other words, they might have a large floor plate where there's natural light on the perimeter, but in the interior of the base, they relied on you know, fluorescent or other kinds of light, and that would not work in a residential space. Uh, the core of the building is you know, too inset or is too large to make the, the, the residential uh, work. There may not be parking, depending on some of the residential, excuse me, your office developments, parking, May or may not have been adequate, or may you know for today's usage, uh, plumbing may not be adequate. The elevator access may not be adequate. So there's just a lot of issues. It will happen for sure. It will happen for some types of uses out there. There will be, but I think it is a little too rosy just to say, hey, let's take all the office building and office space we have and convert it to residential use. There, uh, it may take years, or the office market may recover and absorb some of that space, but it is not a flip the switch solution. I think when just as a visual for some people that maybe think that, you know, an office should easily be converted to residential, like you were saying, uh, if you think about going into high rise office building, oftentimes a lot of the offices don't have windows, don't have access to windows, or, you know, there's a bathroom centrally located. And so all of those like minor details that you don't pay attention to when you used to key in and go into work become a challenge of just flipping the switch, like you said, to residential. So I, I think that that's an important thing to think about. Um, I often, in conversation with people here at the industry I work in, they just say, oh, just change all the office buildings to residential. And it's just not that simple, but it it's definitely a creative space. Yeah, I'll add one other dimension of it, which is, you know, I'm talking, I guess, primarily about urban office buildings, but don't forget For there sure. are suburban office buildings that have lost luster as well. And, you know, just think, is it desirable to live in a 1980 vintage office building in an office park, right? Where, you know, it doesn't feel like a neighborhood. You know, there is potential. You could redevelop the office park into, you know, have a park space, have pools, have amenities. But again, that's a long-term answer. It is not, you know, that you just convert a office building in any location. It is not going to work, even if the building could physically handle it. So a lot of other considerations, clearly one of them is, will there be tenants to lease up the property? So it's got to make sense from a location and a financial standpoint. That comment had me thinking of two things. One is, I, I don't remember if it was in the mid-year report, but we talk a lot about flight to quality. So when you have some of these kind of tired, older offices that may need a lot of work to adapt them into whatever use that someone might see fit, what are we seeing in flight to quality? And what does that mean for people? Yeah, flight to quality is generally referring to tenants in office space that are to take advantage of the low demand situation and the need for landlords or property owners to lease space and hence be able to upgrade space from, let's say, a class C or B property to a class A property because you can get it essentially for the same price, right? Uh, in a market where demand is weak, there's an opportunity to move up to quality, uh, again, commonly known as flight to quality. 
Um, so if you are continuing your your occupancy of office space, why not do it in a better building, right? Or better, you know, that has more amenities or better location or newer. Yeah, and we do see that happening, by the way, in, in a lot of markets. But, you know, I, I think about right now is, you know, buildings built in the 1980s are 40, you know, maybe 50 years old now. In a sense, it doesn't sound that old, at least to someone like myself who's been in the industry for this long. But those are now dated, right? The how they're built, the feeling of the buildings is dated. And, you know, that, you know, while it's common to think of adaptive reuse as, as I said, cool brick buildings from the 1920s and 30s, now we're yeah. looking at what is the adaptive reuse of a building in the 80s, right? We know mid-century modern to some degree is kind of a cool thing today. Those yeah. are buildings in the 50s and 60s. But well, what are we going to do those 80s to early 90s office buildings or late 70s buildings that, you know, maybe the aesthetic isn't in demand yet, right? You're going to have, yeah. to, figure, or have to figure out something to do with that as well. That's a great point. The other thought bubble I had when you were talking about that is when you were talking about downtowns and adaptive reuse is the concept of being involved, and this just connects to some of my other conversations I've been having uh, at the local level or even with different commercial real estate associations, but a lot of what we're talking about has to start at the policy building place and not we can go off on a whole other podcast about policy, you and I, but um, I think it's important to know that zoning is a huge issue for most areas and it's not simple to just say turn X into Y. And um, so I just wanted to kind of highlight that to me, it just connects everything together. It's it's an interesting topic today. Listen, I have a master's degree in urban and regional planning and zoning was a core part of what you what we studied when I was in school. And it's still important. And there's and there's reasons why you don't want a nuisance property next to a school or residential, things like that. And there's some good use. But the, you know, one thing that's being talked about today, particularly in sort of I'll call it the urban development communities, are places like Houston or Minneapolis, which when I was studying urban planning, Houston was always thought of the planner's nightmare, you know, very little zoning requirements. But gosh, the cost of housing in Houston is you know, significantly lower than markets that have very high restrictions on development um, because of zoning. So it's an interesting debate. I think Minneapolis is another city that's done away with some types of zoning, single family zoning, and have allowed more development. So that's primarily sort of, it is a commercial question because there is definitely an opportunity to add more multifamily if you're less restricted where you can build it and you can build it where the demand is. But it is, uh, it also applies to the adaptive reuse we just spoke about when it comes to office properties uh, that maybe have been zoned in a downtown area for office use. And that's it. So that has to be addressed as well uh, through the policy process. Well, thank you so much for digging so deep. I'd love uh, for you to kind of put a bow with a conclusion. I'll, I'll circle back to what I opened with. And sounds like despite concerns over the economy and differences in pricing expectations, there are still commercial real estate activity that is happening alive and well. But I'd love to hear your conclusion of what you're seeing as far as trends go. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, we are in a time of change uh, because of the, you know, for a variety of reasons, but let's say Corby to that because of interest rate uh, increases that the Fed has put in place over the past year in the U.S. But that said, change uh, will bring about some pain, if you will, for some property owners, but it'll also bring opportunities for others. So keep that in mind. Don't color the entire commercial real estate segment simply by what you think about or read about in the commercial office space at Urban Environments. So that's number one. There's still opportunity. Don't forget, uh, our population is getting older. So things like senior housing is still an opportunity. Uh, student housing is still very desirable on college campuses. You know, that high amenity, nice quality student housing. 
the demand for residential, multifamily, single family rentals. Those are all commercial real estate investment types of property. So those, you know, again, if the financing and the and the labor and the cost of construction can all be reconciled and it can be a feasible development, there is still demand for commercial real estate. The market doesn't universally and you know across the board come to a halt. It just slows in certain segments, reflecting the changes that have happened and the uncertainty that there is until there is a more you know settled outlook for uh, the economy and particularly for interest rates into the future. So overall, you know, it's a mixed bag, right? There's definitely parts that are slow. There are opportunities out there. The uh, role of a commercial real estate advisor and a professional is to connect with the client and understand their needs. And I think at Cobalt Banker Commercial, our people are very invested both in their communities and in their clients to helping them reach paths for success, irrespective of the market conditions. Uh, and if that path to success is to sit on the sidelines for six months and come back and, and reevaluate, that's okay. That's, that makes sense. And that's good advice uh, and is uh, part of having a long-term trusted relationship with an advisor. So Christina, I don't know, mixed bag right now. I'd like to be more optimistic, um, but I'm just, you know, there's opportunity out there. So don't call the whole industry. And I look forward to catching up in this discussion in another six months. Absolutely. Well, for anybody that's interested in reading the Coal Banker Commercial Mid-Year Outlook in more depth, it is available at cbcworldwide.com backslash blog. That's the viewpoint section and you can click on trend reports. It'll take you right to what you're looking for to read and uh, to get a deeper dive. Thank you so much for joining us. If anybody wants to connect with you offline, how can they reach you, Dan? The best way to reach me is uh, through LinkedIn. I think that's okay. Send me an in-message. Uh, that's universally accessible to most people. So reach to me uh, via LinkedIn. As far as I know, I'm the only Dan Spiegel at Cobalt Banker Commercial. Uh, so you'll find me pretty easily and uh, send me an in-message and I'll be happy to, to connect with you and uh, learn more about yourself as also about tell you more about what we're up to. Wonderful. Thank you so much for such a great conversation. For those of you that liked what you heard today, don't forget to like and subscribe to our podcast to hear more content like this. Thank you so much. Until next time.